you know, it's not just climate change, it's, a, it's our resource use, it's the soils, all these different key elements of our biodiversity, which are so under the pump right now, that going back to normal is just, it's a suicide mission. We need to think differently. That was Damon Gamo, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott and in this podcast series I'll be uncovering the world of regenerative agriculture, its people, practices and principles and empowering you to apply their learnings and experience to your business and life. I'm an eighth generational Australian farmer who transitioned my family farm from industrial methods to holistic regenerative practices. Join me as I dive deep into the regenerative journeys of other farmers, chefs, health practitioners and anyone else who's up for a yarn and find out why and how they transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with Charlie Arnott. G'day, welcome to the show. Uh, this week we have a fascinating uh, chat with Damon Gamo, the man that brought you that sugar film and the compelling documentary of 2019, 2040, uh, where he absolutely successfully um, gives us hope about the future and identifies and highlights the technologies, the behaviours and the initiatives that are happening in the world right now that we can get involved in action um, to make the world of 2040 a much better place. If you haven't seen it already, go and do that. We also chat about COVID-19 and the, the current state of the world and where he sees that going and, and what's on the other side of this pandemic. Um, we, all, we talk about regenerative agriculture, about renewable energy, about seaweed. Um, we do it all here on the beautiful grounds of the farm of Byron Bay. And uh, it's not to be missed. We talk about his, his own regenerative journey, um, the pivotal uh, events in his life, what he was doing before, um, his, uh, his new career, his new trajectory, and, uh, and why he started his own regenerative journey uh, not that many years ago. Uh, I trust you enjoy this fascinating chat with Damon Gemmo. Wait for the plane to go. Oh, it's the highway. It's, it's the one plane in two weeks that's flown over and it's doing it right now. It's just come straight out of London. It's the last last plane out of London. Damon Gamo, um, welcome to the show, The Regenerative Journey. Um, lovely to have you here. I've been very excited since you agreed five minutes ago to, uh, to come on the show. Um, and we're sitting in the beautiful – how are you? Man, I'm actually quite quite well. Yeah, I must admit that um, uh, after some a little bit of anxiety early on in this sort of, as we speak, we're kind of, what, six weeks into the COVID mm. chapter. And uh, early on, I, I sort of yeah, didn't, I don't know, I was, I was a little bit anxious, but I, f- I feel like I've settled in a little bit and had a lot of lovely home time with the family. And I think um feel very fortunate that I haven't had to travel as much. And I think there's been... It's been a positive experience for us, and I know not everyone has had that, but it has been a good experience for our family. I want to get to more of that later in the in the interview. Um, hold that thought. Yep. Um, we're sitting here at the farm at Byron Bay. We're outside. We are, according to my agricultural measurements, one point five meters away from each other. The cameras cameras often lie, um, and I chose this spot because. <laughs> He's got very, very long arms. He's like a gorilla, this guy. Um, we're sitting here at the farm because it's a beautiful spot. Yeah, you've chosen very well, mate. And um, I don't know, this is it. This is just lovely. It's very tranquil. Mm. Um, you might hear some background ambient noises. Yes. And that's all part of the the regen that you're uh, talking about here, Charlie. And I'm very grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. And um, I hope you're not too – there was a bit of wind and so we've improvised with some tea cosies on our mics. I think they're doing a cracking job. You've got the chicken. I have got a chicken. I might have spotted a couple of nits flying around, <laughs> which might try and hijack my beard, but that's all right. That was on my son's head the other day, so okay. yep. it must have been on mine before that if it's got nits in it. <laughs> and I've got a cow. Um, <laughs> one, one more burning question I have before we kick off just to more serious things. Mm. When you played Greg Chapel in How's That yep. uh, a few years ago, that, that mo you were sporting, was that yours? How dare you? <laughs> I was just how checking. How dare you? I, just, I know oh. how it works in showbiz. Oh, no, that was, that was all me. <laughs> that was all uh, you. I was very proud of that. Um, it wasn't from the props department. 
No, I mean, I think there might have been a bit of colouring added to it sometimes in the morning, just, uh, just, a, bit a, gr- just a bit of highlighting. 2000. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm glad you asked that, Charlie, because that was a... <laughs> It was a really I, I really idolised Greg Chappell as a youngster that that era and um, it was one of those rare acting jobs you, you get they don't come along very often where you feel oh this is fun and mm. you got to spend a bit of time with Greg and talk mm. to him about mm. really interesting stories which we can get to if you want to but just how how he stayed focused on the field like because he was actually doing meditation before anyone else was around the world so he was really? doing it in the seventies and he had these really interesting processes before he'd face a ball that he. You know, try and find someone in the crowd and find someone in a red dress, for example. And that would just take his focus right away from the next delivery, mm. give himself a break, and then he'd come in and focus again. So it was really interesting hearing all those insights way ahead of his time in terms of that sports psychology element. And that was all part of your research, digging deep? Well, I like to do that even on, on the take when we were doing the performance. I'd yeah. say, look, excuse me, director, I just need a moment. I just need to find someone in the crew in a red dress. And then when you tell me, you are the Joel Garner, and I will then focus on you when you call action. <laughs> I like that. Um, well, look, I hope we can find. I hope you. Well, I hope you don't need to do that today. <laughs> to be so, to be so stressed out, you need to meditate on a red dress because there are none around here today. I tell you, there's none. There's a few pigs over there and a few, few ibis. Uh, <laughs> focus, focus on the chicken. Oh. Now, um, uh, let's get on to let's get on to the the journey. Yeah. Um, this this podcast, I just have to not not have to. I want to. I want to just kick off by thanking Landcare Australia for the generous um, supporting of this podcast. It was a um, as part of winning a, an award, um, the Bob Hawke Landcare Award, a couple of years ago. Um, they've generously helped support this um, this podcast and this series. So I just want to make sure that um, we have that acknowledgement up front because without them, I wouldn't be sitting here with Damon um, chatting um, and 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 having the uh, having the wonderful experience we're having at the right. farm right now. If it gets back to them that all you were talking about was Greg Chappell's moustache, will they take the award away from you? <laughs> I think it's well. Look, I was going to say I hope it's too late. It may not be the next recipient. It's every two years. It's okay. it's, it's. I was absolutely honoured to to have, to have received that, um, and I guess the the one holds that mantle for two years. So September this year, um, uh, or no November, I think it's the uh, Landcare um, Conference in Sydney mm-hmm. at Piermont, and mm-hmm. they will announce the next the the winner. So I'll hand on the baton. Yeah. To a very worthy recipient, so I've got a few years, a few years, a few months of good behaviour in front of me, okay. Damon. Not that I'd ever, ever say anything bad about Lancaster Australia. I've been, they've been part of my life for thirty years now, um, in in bits and pieces. We must get on to the the the. Well, we're going to lose people. I might have already paused or moved on to a different <laughs> podcast by now. They've probably gone. Joe Rogan is so much better. <laughs> Um, this is called the regenerative journey, um, Damon, because what I love to do is dig deep, 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 I can't even talk, too many coffees this morning, is dig deep into the lives of my guests to really understand um, where and how and why, more importantly, their regenerative journey started. So before we do that, can you give me a, give our, our listeners and our viewers um, a bit of a rundown on you know life before Whatever you define the point of a, a pivot, or a, mm. was it a tension event or epiphany? What what were you doing before that that sort of led up to a point where you know? Because I know you've you've had a few, um, or at least you know, one major um, uh, change in trajectory. Mm-hmm. Tell us about before that. So grew up in Adelaide, born and raised in Adelaide, uh, predominantly with my mother. Just grew up. My mum saw my dad only occasionally. A pretty sort of solid childhood in that sense. Um, Mum, really interesting character, um, but just, um, you know, did the sort of the full single mum heroic effort to raise me, Um, sent me to a a private boys' school, um, which had its issues, um, especially as I got older. Uh, Finished there, decided that maybe I wanted to be a journalist, so studied that for a while. Then I thought I might want to be a lawyer, and then that lasted about two months. And then I decided to be an actor, really. And I think a lot of that, when I look back, was um, that I was seeking validation in a lot of ways. I, I think I, I didn't have a happy childhood, so I found a real comfort in pretending to be someone else and then getting mm. lauded and often getting accolades for that. Like it's a very, um, 
you know, it's a pretty vain industry in the sense that you're often, you know, getting clapped on stage or you're getting picked up and fed. You're getting looked after. There's a sort of within our culture, there's a sort of a false idolizing sometimes of that particular culture by some people, um, that celebrity culture. And I sort of got swept up in that for a while and thought that that's what I wanted to do. And um, I guess when I went to NIDA, which is the acting school in Sydney and, and finished there and I was very lucky straight away. I got some really interesting jobs and uh, one was called The Tracker uh, with, with a director named Rolf Tahir who'd done Bad Boy Bubby and some other films. And we went out, basically, uh, David Goldpool, who was the lead actor in that, and, and I was 23 at the time. And we went out to a place called Arcarula, which was about six hours north of Adelaide, this beautiful mountain range, and shot this film, which was set in the 20s. And it sort of followed the, based on the journals of uh, some policemen in the 20s that used to go out with these hunting parties with the Aboriginals, and they'd sort of, you know, get rid of some of the Aboriginal people out there. And so that was quite an fascinating process that was the first job i ever did and it was done with such grace and integrity and the film did very well internationally and we went to the venice film festival all these lovely things happened and i thought wow this is great this is the career i want to do and then i very quickly came back to earth in the sense that the majority of the jobs that you do aren't done with that kind of integrity that you know often it's it is an underbelly or it's that kind of job and you know that just the more i did those i just they just weren't resonating with me and i I, w I was really torn. I didn't know what else to do, but I just thought I'm not enjoying this. I'm, I'm stuck on set. And every now and again, a job would come along like the tracker. I did one called Balibo, which is about the, the East Timorese, the, the, the Aussie journalists that went over there in the seventies. And I played Greg, Chap uh, Greg, <laughs> Greg Chappell, Greg Shackleton. And he, I got to know his wife, Shirley very well, who's been a huge activist for Timor issues and read his diaries and, you know, had his watch and recreated his footsteps in the, in the weeks before his death. So, Again, that was a very, felt like a noble job to be representing another human being. But then you've got to juxtapose that with just paying the bills and doing all the commercials and all that. And I just got to a point where I thought, you know what, this this is just too infuriating. And I I went over to America and I thought, great, I'll give Hollywood a go. And I did a show called How I Met Your Mother. And I did a couple of other American films. And I just, that was, I just, I finally reached this point that I'd been craving. I got there and I went, oh man. It's just, there's just no substance. All the cliches you hear, it's just, there was no depth to it. It wasn't rewarding in the way that I thought it was going to be. And so I, it coincided with moving to London at the time. I chased this girl over there and I, we had a pretty ugly breakup and I was sort of in London at three in the morning one night and just, um, just, she'd just passed another guy in front of me at a nightclub as you do, you know, it's kind of the. The right of passage. Good stuff. Good stuff. Was, it purple? was it purple? Was it a purple nightclub under uh, the bridge? At, uh... Yeah, pretty much. It was, it was a cavernous. It was, I remember <laughs> it was underground. It was just, it just ticked all the boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. I just sat on the stairs outside London and just, the pain, the angst of just going, this is not it. I, what am I doing? I'm just not doing the things I want to be doing. And when are you going to bloody wake up to yourself and start choosing things that you do want to do? So... That sort of was the first schism point, I guess, where I just started thinking differently and exploring things and reading books that I hadn't really read before and starting to investigate a different side, you might say a more spiritual side, or just starting to learn more about myself and, and what makes me tick. What are these patterns of behavior that I've developed over the years that I've downloaded from my parents? What are the ones that aren't serving me as well as I'd like them to serve me? So I just started doing a bit of reprogramming there, a bit of different work, um, did a few things with my mum to try and sort of, we'd had a very intense relationship because obviously it was just her and I um, growing up. So just had to untangle a few things there. Um, just, you know, went to Peru and did the whole ayahuasca thing and, and, and drank from the, the, the cup and all those things. I just tried everything just to see and work out who I was. And in that time, I also met my now wife, Zoe, who was a very, very different person to me. She sort of didn't partake in a lot of the things that I'd held to be important. And at that time, I really spent a lot of effort cultivating this persona of myself as this, you know, rolly smoking, velvet jacket wearing, actoring, Lothario guy and just loved the first three months of a relationship and then ran for the hills, you know, so very good at the honeymoon period. So... Yeah, after that, I just, everything changed. Basically, my entire life changed and, and a lot of friends that even see footage or photos of me can't believe that person that was back then. And, and I think I was just very confused. I was very addled with my own thoughts and they were very self-destructive thoughts. And I had high levels of anxiety and I really had no faith or belief in myself at all. And so it was easy to hide behind acting because you're often telling other people's stories. Can, can I just um, ask a question? <clears throat> Do you think... Um, people, many, some, go into acting as a result of, I guess, uh, a way of um, 
maybe not the right word, dealing with their childhood or as a result of their childhood, you know, there's sort of, a, as you sort of alluded to before, it was sort of like a, a way to escape something or a way to be someone that, that some, something else that you weren't or... A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and look, any, you know, and I say this with all the love in the heart because some of my best best friends are actors, but, sure. but none of them are very stable. <laughs> you know, there, there's always a complexity to an actor and even the best ones, you think of the best actors you can think of, they're, they're pretty nuts, you know, all of them. And um, it just often comes with that sort of trauma or trying to run away from something or escape it that it also makes you a better actor, to be honest. It's very rare that to meet someone that's just quite stable and has their shit together they're not that interesting to watch <laughs> do you know what i mean but it's the, yeah, it's the tortured you think of joaquin phoenix or something like you, you yeah. watch him because you go what's going on like the, the, yeah. the layers and the complexity yeah. and the depth of pain and all sorts of things that's what makes him so magnificent so um and it's funny because even at night they sort of talk they try and beat that out of you they try and you know talk about you being so middle class and like let's get right back to your trauma and you do these exercises where you're walking around trying to channel and dig into your deep pain of when your dad did this you know it's 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 a i don't know it, it it's it has benefits there are great things to it but i also think it's a deeply flawed profession and the fact that we lord it so much and we let people that are genuinely doing amazing things like trying to help the planet or whatever we just don't have any accolades or award ceremonies for those people um, is always been baffling to me that, mm. that look who we're actually worshipping. And if people actually got to know some of these people, they'd think, wow, like, yeah, there's, there's some complexities there. There's, they're not these people that we're idolising. In fact, it's that, that idolatry is actually causing pain for them. And I had that. I had an experience where I, I, I won this Tropfest competition, the short film, and I had to go back as a judge. And it was just, I won't name names, but really top shelf actors were on the judging panel there was about eight of us and they were sort of international oscar winning and it was really raining and we had to sort of spend time in this room to make to do the judging for about an hour afterwards and that was the first time i just remember looking at these people that i'd looked up to for 15 years and thought wow they're they're deeply insecure they're, they're even though they've got all these awards and they've from the outside you think god how much more do you need but it doesn't fill that void they were still searching and still bickering about someone or and I thought oh man this is not it like so I just kept getting these little signs of saying I don't think this is for you mate like it might be for someone else and that's fine but you've actually got things you want to say when are you going to say them like why are you keep hiding behind these other characters and then I got the the, the the catalyst for that was I was in hospital I got really sick and I had this blood infection and I was in this ward with three other 85 year olds or three 85 year olds and that's <laughs> me and the eight yeah and uh i just it was one of those crazy weeks where i got to know them you know they didn't sleep very well i'd get up and help them tonight we all told stories it was a really beautiful week and i sat up at two in the morning one one morning and i thought okay if if you were in this hospital bed and you were 85 with these people are you proud of yourself uh, did you actually do the things you wanted to do mate like or did you just always hide behind the actor veneer and, and too scared to do that. And that was a big moment. I sort of wrote this thing out and went, no, that would just break me if I just got to that point and I never, ever jumped off the cliff and took the risk. So it was only a couple of weeks later that I, I, I started to make this Tropfest film, which is the first time I'd actually made something of my own. And then that got in and it won that and then everything and then that led to Sugar Film. and that led, So that, I'd, I'd see that as the big moment of, of like just having a stern talking to myself and realising that you know I wasn't happy what I was doing. And that um, now I just, I feel like my life has completely changed in the last 12 years. And it feels like two different lives, to be honest. And um, I couldn't be happier now. I couldn't be more fulfilled with what I do and feel incredibly lucky and grateful to have made that discovery and, and wish that for everyone. I, I hope everyone gets to understand that, that we are so controlled by the story we tell ourselves. As we, as we, we can get to that, that we've told a story of the greater, the larger narrative around how we live and operate and as we're seeing as we talk now in the middle of COVID, that all those illusory forms and structures have just sort of suddenly dissolved and we've seen how fragile our system is, that I think it's the same with our own thoughts and our own stories we tell ourselves, that they are not anywhere near as strong as we think they are sometimes. And if we can start to observe them and spot them and actually reframe them, we can fundamentally change our lives. I was going to jump to, to COVID later, but we're on it now. So let's stay there. How... How how has it changed? What are you doing differently now that you weren't before? Like, and 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 are you going to continue those changes once this is over? Because I'm sure it will be in some form. Yeah, I mean, the big change for us has been 
I feel the last, especially because I've been releasing 2040, which is, um, for those that don't know, this documentary I made, um, we released it in Australia last May, but then it's been sort of touring in different countries around the world and we were supposed to release it in America uh, in the next few weeks. So there's been so much travel with that and, you know, guest speaking and doing all sorts that I just just sort of burnt myself out a little bit. I sort of, you know, two or three flights a week and being away from the family, we've got a seven-month-old baby. So it's just been quite a revelation to stop, you know, and actually um, be at home and not go around. So that's been a huge change for us and has had ripple effects on my relationship with my eldest daughter, who's six, and my wife, of course, to have more support around, like quite transformational for us as a family. So I'm lucky that we've we've got that capacity and we can have that time and I feel very grateful for that, but we've certainly used it, I think, for the betterment of us and our little unit. Um, and this, you know, things I'm doing in terms of um, the lectures or talks I might have done, a lot of them are online now and I think I can do this moving forward. I don't need to go back and actually be there face-to-face -face with everything. I can do this better moving forward. So I don't think I'll, I actually won't. I can say it categorically. I'm not going to go back to what I was doing. There'll be things I have to do, but I will do it differently. But I've also found that we've almost been busier in a lot of ways with the work we're doing because I do feel that this is a moment. This is a, this is a rare moment where the door is slightly ajar and for anyone that's sort of been thinking about systemic ideas or the planet in general, or even artists, I'd say, this is the moment we've all been waiting for. It's like suddenly we've hit stop on the system and all the machinations and everything that's gone is on pause. So in this pause moment, as I said it before, it's like it's the chrysalis. It's the, it's the caterpillar going into the cocoon. And, and before it becomes a butterfly, it becomes this amorphous goop-like state with, <laughs> with no structure to it. Totally. And I feel like sort of a lot of our systems and ways of operating are in that state right now. Now, of course, we're going to go back and, and, and use a lot of the things we've been doing before, but we do have an opportunity to change some things quite fundamentally. And I, and I do think a lot of things won't go back to what they were. And we've seen some quite radical things come through, whether it's Spain introducing a universal basic income, which was a radical idea only two months ago. We've got Amsterdam of just employ, um, in, uh, this donut economics, which we show in 2040, which is by um, a UK economist called Kate Rayworth. They've decided to implement that full-time in their, in their city of Amsterdam, which then doesn't rely constantly on exponential growth. It actually factors in ecological and social boundaries that look after us. So, you know, would that have happened with COVID? Probably not. Mm. But... I just think this is an opportunity. So we've been busier in a lot of ways because how do you now start lobbing out those ideas? This is the time to have a, a chat about that. And food's a great example. How do we build more resilience into our food system? Because we've seen how fragile it is. How do we actually localise that, decentralise that so we can actually have more produce, healthy produce grown in our own country? We can be supplying communities. Everyone's got their own sense of independence as opposed to relying on a centralised source, which is going to be threatened as we move forward. There's going to be more pandemics. There's going to be more climate shocks like the bushfires. That, that is the reality now. So how do we actually prepare for this? And I, and I think in a lot of ways this has been a dress rehearsal and they're going to get worse. And we're lucky in a way that, that, that this particular strain is, is, I mean, I say benign lightly, but it's, it's not as bad as it could be. I mean, there are people talking about avian bird flus that have a 60% mortality rate. That's catastrophic. So this has been a wonderful chance for us to go, okay, Moving forward, how do we handle this differently? Let's listen to science. That kind of looks after us sometimes. Um, let's make decisions based on that data. And I think there's countries like Taiwan that have done it perfectly. As soon as they got wind of this, the politicians stepped back. It didn't become politicised. They had a group that moved forward of experts that made the decisions. They set up a media arm that broadcast to every TV and radio station every hour, clear, concise messaging. They've had two deaths and they've got 25 million people in their country. Amazing. You know? So there are lessons to be learnt. Um, and... Yeah, I, I just, but I know that I hope more people think of this as an opportunity, but I don't think a, a lot of people just want to get back to what it was. Let's go, come on, and now let's just ramp that economy up and try and catch up. Get, catch up. And, and, you know, as you know, as I know, that's, the, that's not, we can't do that for the planet. You know, it's not just climate change. It's, a, it's our resource use. It's the soils. All these different key elements of our biodiversity, which are so under the pump right now, that going back to normal is just, it's a suicide mission. And so I just... We need to think differently. Jumping to regenerative agriculture, regenerative farming, sustainable farming, conservation farming. Um, where do you think that? Do you think there is at this point in time, given the COVID situation, an opportunity um, for for farmers to jump into it, or those who are currently doing it? Or where, where, where is there been a pivot for those for that for that industry? I mean, you'd probably know better than me, but I'd say that. 
most farmers I've spoken to that have switched practices, it's come off the back of some kind of crisis or a turning point in their own lives. And, you know, there's a lovely quote by this guy, William Davies. He says that um, to experience a crisis is to inhabit a world that is temporarily up for grabs. So I think that this is the time that people are, you know, at least thinking about it, looking at different ways, and especially around that resilience element of we need to value local food production much more than we have been. And we need to bring farmers into that conversation and empower them because it's not just this industry, it's whether it's manufacturing, whether it's our energy, we can't be outsourcing everything overseas anymore. We just can't. We just don't, the, the system isn't robust and it's not built for, it's a 20th century model that's trying to deal with 21st century problems. So we have to adapt. And I would say that regenerative agriculture is well, even though it's a very ancient practice, it's absolutely the most exciting biological technology that's emerging in this century with such, as you know, a cascading benefits. So it's not just the healthy foods. It's the water, which of course we need to hold it because the climate's getting hotter and the hotter air holds more moisture. So we're going to get more intense rainfall. So how do we hold that water? Well, we don't build more dams. We, we put it in the land. I love that talk we were both at that Walter Yenay talked about with the, you know, 100 drops if you condense all the, the rainfall in Australia to 100 drops. Two get caught in a dam, 36 are in transpiration, and then 50 run off or evaporate. Mm. So building, doubling our dams only catches four of those drops. Let's hold that water in the landscape. Mm. So I'm excited. I, I did something with Charlie Massey the other day, and he, he was saying that he thinks that we've, 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 we've passed the pioneer stage, that we're into that next phase. And that was just lovely to hear him say that because I've been feeling that, and, and certainly on our 2040 journey, that's a section where people get really excited. We did a chat the other day with Southern Cross University that are now offering a Bachelor of Science with a major in Regen Ag. It's the yes. first in the world. Like, yeah. That's terrific. And you know, questions that came from that course and the amount of people that were on that chat, you know, or, or I did a farm visit down with Martin Royds with you and, and just to see how many people were there asking questions and you did this stuff. You can't help but get excited when you see that. And you, and you see these hardened farmers and you see the look in their eye when they're like, what? Or they're seeing how he's managing the water or like... You know, I'm only new to this, but I, I can see that enthusiasm and, and uh, that gives me hope, you know. And where does where do you think the, the topics of agriculture and food transect? You know, it's, the, the, mm. it's, it's much more topical now um, because a lot of farmers don't think about the fact they're actually growing food. They're commodity, you know, commodity farmers. A lot of people who eat the food don't know where it's come from. So, what, yeah. you know, what, what's, what's your sense of um, the, the focus or the emphasis on, on how those two are now connected? Yeah, I mean, I still think there's work to do, but I, I think that, um, especially the younger generation, that there's sort of technologies emerging that are, I think, going to be quite transformative in the terms of the minute you'll be able to measure the, the health of that soil and the life in the soil. You know, you can do it now with supply chains and fish and things like that, and you can look at, you know, um, Korea, sorry, Taiwan are doing an experiment where you can see what vaccinations and animals had that you've eaten. And that's interesting, and it's a blockchain, you scan your phone. But the minute you can see the vitamin and mineral quality of your foods and how healthy the soil is, I mean, that is a complete game changer. If farmers start getting paid not by weight but by vitamin and mineral quality, mm. that just revolutionises everything. So I'm, I'm excited about that because I think the story isn't quite there around that connection between – people don't understand the difference between a carrot that's grown in a chemical fallowed paddock versus the regen farming. So, so how do we get that more and more into the, in the mainstream? I think it's coming. But I think that'll be a game changer when enough people get that and understand that that healthy food and all those microorganisms are the same and how they interact with your own gut microbe and all the microorganisms around your body. I think we'll start to see people really shift away from this sort of Frankenstein kind of lab-grown meat story, which, to be honest, I just, I just, it just doesn't resonate with me. We we did a story with Impossible Meats and filmed them and. You know, the giveaway for me was on the lab door. It said, no food allowed in the lab. I was like, well, no shit. <laughs> like, make, there's no food in there, to, mate. They're trying to make. <laughs> That's right. And, um, and we've done that experiment. You know, I, my first film was sugar film. I saw the impacts of what fast food mm. and processed food could do. And these things, let's not kid ourselves, they're processed food. Mm. And all the life in that soil that goes into the grass, that then goes into the foods if you want to eat, you know, not eat meat, all goes into the animal. That's the same stuff that's keeping us healthy. Mm. You take that cycle out you're going to have deleterious effects. So we just need to make that clearer for people. I was reading an interesting, interesting article the other day on a sustainable dish, Diane Rogers, and, mm. um, Diana Rogers, and she um, uh, was highlighting that this, this, 
this pandemic is is actually uh, highlighted that um, people you know, people want there's a there's a photo of a, of a in a supermarket and all the meat uh, and I'm not promoting meat necessarily but I'm saying all the meat all the fresh food was gone and all of the processed stuff wasn't it was sort of and it really emphasised not just from the consumer's point of view but also from a supply chain point of view that there is as Joel Salatin says once you take once you, once you pull a curtain back there's nothing behind it yeah. you know there's there's because those the processed foods are relying on so many parts to 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 actually yeah. work whether it's the processing of the food it's the it's the it's the diesel that's burnt to grow the crops it's the gmo it's whatever but yeah. with fresh nutritiously dense food there's a whole lot behind it but it's so simple yeah that's mm-hmm. right and this sort of furphy that we don't you know we're not going to have enough food to feed 10 billion people on a planet it's just nonsense it's just mm. that no one talks about the inefficiencies of our system you know and that we could do it easily and we could do it organically or regeneratively but we just you know, it just requires a complete shift in our mental thinking and a paradigm. Let's let's jump to twenty forty. I know it's been it's been um, very intense. Well, not just last twelve months since its release, but obviously a few years worth of filming. Um, but I want to just go there quickly because it's one of one of the quotes that um, I've I've read that you as you were sort of explaining as to you know why you did it was that it's a, a it was an exercise in fact-based dreaming Hmm. can we just go there because i think that's a really um it's it's a nice place to go from here onwards in terms of our our, this pandemic we're in and and sort of the the attitude we take yeah i mean i think that the as much as climate change and some of these other environmental issues have been we've just tried to use science to convince people with these things and i think it's been a human problem largely, and I think it's been a crisis of imagination that we we have evolved to tell stories, and yet we think that graphs and logic and data are the thing that's going to move us, mm. and I don't think that's going to move us. And especially now when we're inundated with so many different statistics and graphs and whatnot, that we've got to get people at the heart level, and we've got to communicate to them in ways that, of things that they really value, which is their security, their health, their communities, and maybe the future of their kids, you know. And I think we've just got lost trying to do all these other things and especially use the fear narrative and wake people up. And and all the psychologists I spoke to when I was making this film said that, you know, we've got this thing called a a window of tolerance. There's only so much that we can take. And if you were making documentaries maybe in the early 2000s, late 90s, that shock value was quite powerful mm. because we weren't saturated every night on the news or every, with this constant dystopian story about the planet and what's going on and another tweet from Trump. and like, It's just chaos right now. So people actually can't, after a busy day at work, go and sit down at a cinema, take the kids and go, let's go watch a film about the reefs dying. Like It's just so, it's so hard to do that. It's important, yeah, but the psychology is not marrying up. So I just thought there was room um, to still pose the problem but put the problem in the framework of a solution so then instead of having a film where you've just got 89 minutes of how bad things are and there's three minutes at the end saying hey but if you use this and buy this you'll be fine it's like now let's flip that right around we can still talk about the problem but that can be five or ten minutes let's talk about the great things that people are doing and use that as a motivator and, and, and again there's a there's a lovely quote by raymond williams and he said that to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing mm. And we've done the convincing so well. We all get it. In fact, it's paralyzing us. We're shutting off. It's too hard. It's too existential. Can't even think about it. So I thought, can we bring people in by actually showing them that life could be better on the other side of this? Our communities could be stronger. We could have more money, less materials. We're going to be happier with that. Like we can share stuff, quieter skies, less traffic. Like all these things are possible that will enhance our life. And these same things will fix a lot of our ecological problems. So it's just to just trying to reframe that, and it, and it's been really lovely to see the response, especially from kids. Like it's been extraordinary how well the children have responded to that, and got excited about their future, and thought, you know what, I might be an engineer. I want to learn about how to make these seaweed things out at sea, or I want to do microgrids. And they'd send me a little like they've done these little miniature microgrids they've built with mini solar panels. Like, wow, that's cool. Because you, you're starting to kickstart their imagination again and get them dreaming and get them excited. So, um, yeah. Uh, there's a long way to go. There's lots of people doing this stuff, but I just think it's uh, we've got some really solid evidence now that, that 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 it works, and people have followed through not only by seeing the film but contributing and helping bring to life a lot of the solutions that we've depicted in the film. 
Well, one of them was is is the seaweed, or what? Mm. What, what did you come up with? It wasn't not a weed because it's actually really sea. What is it? Sea sea queen. Sea queen. Mm-hmm. We love it. Um, that's been quite a bit of a bit of a. Phenomena, hasn't it? Like what what you did in terms of the identifying the opportunities of that that's really created um, some amazing developments in that space. Yeah, I think it was one of those solutions that people just thought, how do we? I mean, especially seaweed. We've all got an impression of what seaweed is, but when you actually see what it's capable of, and that it's it's again, it's right on the front lines of all the impacts of global warming. Our oceans are absorbing about ninety percent of the heat, so a lot of the kelp's been wiped out because of those warming oceans. Especially down in Tassie, they've lost about ninety five percent of their kelp. Mm. Right along the west coast of WA, they've lost their kelp, which affects the fishing industries as well because the fish lay their eggs in there. It's a habitat for the fish. So this uh, professor we met in Massachusetts had just came up with this really interesting idea of. Um, recycling some of the cooler nutrient-laden waters from the deeper ocean, bring it up higher levels to cool that top surface level, and he puts this platform there that regrows, regrows the kelp on there. So the idea is that you could grow these giant forests of kelp out at sea, not use more land, have these forests that aren't prone to fire, all sorts of things. They alkalize the water, they um, create these habitats for the fish. The seaweed itself can be used for bioplastics mm. and all sorts of things, but it also is a huge sequester of carbon. So that the seaweed can grow about half a metre a day and up to 50 metres long. So the idea is that you would then harvest a lot of these seaweeds. And as soon as you sink it below 1,000 metres, the weight of that ocean will store it as um, carbon on the ocean floor, potentially yeah. for millennium. So it's an incredibly exciting opportunity. There's no vested interest yet. It's not politicized. It's just a very clean idea. So we set up this sort of crowdfund off the back of that to launch the first platform in Tassie. And again, just, you know, people giving, caring, $10, $15 donations here and there, kids giving me $5 from their lunch money. And then Intrepid Foundation match fund that. So we're up to 750 grand and, and that's now being built in Tassie with the University of Tasmania. So that's because... People were given hope and a solution they got excited about and they felt motivated to take action. So now we're about to do another one in Devon in the UK. Uh, we're working with Tim Flannery and some others. They're doing the first sort of global sim- seaweed symposium to bring all the best engineers and ocean experts together to say, how do we scale this up properly? Are there any un- unforeseen consequences of this? Uh, what do we do once we harvest the seaweed? Do you put it in one giant trench or do you disperse it around the ocean? All these decisions um, and questions that we need to ask. and. I feel like it's probably what would have happened in the 60s around, you know, wind turbines or solar panels, that there would have been these initial chats about these things that could really transform the planet. So I'm very excited to be able to chart that for the rest of my life and see what happens to it because I do think there'll be a huge seaweed industry and they'll be localised because it just, especially as the climate kicks in and we get more damage to our land crops in some areas we can't provide that food, especially not just in Australia but other countries, to have an alternative food source in the oceans fish seaweed all the crustaceans the lot i mean it's a no-brainer let's mm. just do it for that reason but again you get all these other bonus uh, these benefits well in, in um in the history of farming um you know centuries ago the the farmers back then knew the benefits of, of seaweed you know, in scotland they used to drag it up onto their paddocks and plow it in did they you really? know that was because they knew it was nutrient dense all those all those minerals and it broke down easily um, so we're sort of, it's not exactly what we're talking about, but, it, but in terms of it being a resource that is that is renewable, as yeah. it were, and yeah. being um, of value, you know, because, and obviously back then they were still growing food and, and, and essentially taking nutrients out. So they found a way sustainably to replace those nutrients, you know, so. Yeah, I remember reading um, in the research, this journal of one of the first explorers across America, and he'd walked from um, the east coast over to the west and he said he got up sort of near Oregon and he stood on this coast and he wrote how that he could just see for literally 40 or 50 kilometres out to sea was the seaweed, this huge belt of it. Mm. But the life, he said there were sea lions everywhere and birds and fish hopping out of the water and dolphins. It was just this thriving, like a forest, like a forest on land with all this ecosystem. That's what we're capable of, returning that. And I, you know, we posed the idea in the film, imagine the tourism of diving through that. Wow. You know, and, and, and being able to scuba through these underwater forests with all this marine life in there. Like, again, so many benefits to doing this that it's just like, you know, we just need to shift our thinking. Let's talk about, um, I could talk about politics. Do we want to talk about politics? Is there anything you'd like to say about politics, whether it's about <laughs> the the COVID or, you know, um, I don't know. It's not, not necessarily a topic I want to go there, no. but is there, is there anything, any tips you can give people about how to how they might wade their way through the political climate, whether that be this one or the, you know, the future global politics? Don't feel obliged. I mean, is that, where we, can, is that is... where we can make change? 
Uh, is that where change it happens? Is, look, it's broken, I think, in a lot of, you know, we're seeing, what we're seeing, I think, is that if we're not, if we're not careful and these kind of shocks keep happening, especially with climate stuff, that as people get fearful, they will vote for more authoritarian leaders. They will vote for securing the borders, building walls, protecting what they've got. And I think that's a slippery slope. So we have to change the narrative on that and tell stories that excite people. And as I was saying before, show them a very different world, that it can be much better and we can actually be better off. We don't have to retreat into fear. And I think politicians right across the world for the last 25 years have used that. I mean, you think of when I was growing up, you know, being a politician was setting a bold vision for your region or saying this is what we're going to now it's about protection mm. and, and and demonizing a particular race or vilifying something else and using that leverage of fear to actually get your votes mm. and i just i just don't like that i think that's that's not a direction it's not a world i want my children to live in i understand why they're doing it but particularly in this country we have a very tightly linked political system with our extractive industries and, and you know i explore that in the film i did a lot of research into that and we have one of the most tightly controlled media landscapes in the world. You know, mm. I think we're in the top five now. Yeah. We have all of our commercial television owners have links to extractive industries. We've got our number one radio show, Talkback Host, who has very much interest in keeping the status quo. We have one company that sells about 60% of our newspapers or distributes them every day. So there is a narrative there. We're talking about storytelling. It's very hard for people to understand or see these solutions. Or, and I don't blame them. They're just being told, they're being pumped a certain story and they have been for a long time. So um, it's not about vilifying people or ostracizing them. I think it's about understanding that, meeting them where they're at and then opening them up to say, hey, you know, it could be different because I think that sort of us against them, activist, aggressive thing, it's just done. Like everyone's tired of that. We're already put into our little individual bubbles through social media. We've got to find a way to rehumanize and connect and actually find the common ground with each other and say, yeah, we might not agree on everything, but... How about this? Have you considered this? Or And it comes back to the healthy food and the kids. We all have those things in common. Mm. We've just got all these trigger words now. We've politicized so many things that should never have been politicized. I mean, climate change is a classic one. Mm. Like, you know, if we just listen to the science that like we've done before, we do in this moment right now, we suddenly defer to the doctors and we make a decision. But we know there's so much politics and vested interest in there that it's just convoluted the whole space. And, and that's a great shame. Damon, it's... One, one thing, one topic, I guess, I'm always fascinated to ask uh, my guests about is mentoring and mentors. Did you have um, a mentor or mentors and, and are they important to, to you? Were they important and you know, what, what sort of, what, and why were they important? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I, um, not in terms of the filmmaking space, I always felt frustrated like i'd watch documentaries i love documentaries but they'd often be the same and they'd often have a formula that was quite reverent and there'd be a guest in front of a dusty bookshelf and it was a talking head and i always used to watch and think why why can't we just shake that up a bit like why can't we use speakers differently and use creativity to tell stories and, and bring in a much broader group of the community because i think docos often play to quite of a unique crowd especially if you go to the festivals or if you're just watching it on your own on, on, on netflix or something the power of storytelling and filmmaking can be a shared experience. It's a community town hall event. And that's what I tried to do with Sugar and 2040. We didn't want to go down that streaming route. It was like, no, we want to show this in the Bingara town hall. And we want to show this at wherever it might be and have a whole group of people come and watch this and have a great conversation for an hour afterwards. So I think that's where film's incredibly powerful. And, and we, we used to do that. People used to go watch the news together every night at, at the cinema and holler and shout and cheer. Yeah. And it's a shared experience. So I felt a little bit, there was no one particularly in that space that was a mentor. Um, and I felt a bit nervous because of that initially. I thought, gee, am I just going way out on a limb here? And even some diehard sort of doco people don't like my films. They think it's not, they're not documentaries. You know? Why is that? Well, because they're not, they're not verite and they're not, um, you know, observational. They're not reverent and they're not, they don't have Philip Glass through them. And fair enough, no worries, but I don't want, if you've got a story to tell, I don't want it to play to a very minute group of people. I want people that have never seen a documentary to see it. And that's what happened with Sugar. I'd, I'd be stopped at, you know, the Gold Coast Shopping Centre and someone would go, mate, I've never seen it. I've never really watched Docos. I hate them. But I saw your film. It was mm. bloody great. 
And that's that's a win for me because like that's how we like especially with these topics we've got to get them out we've got to make them broad they can't just be to people in the know or this sort of intellectual sort of elitist I mean I just no we're done with all that so I think my mentors are probably people that um I I I respect for sort of trying to take risks and and go into uncomfortable places I've found often that um, certain academics I really respect. So with 2040, I had a very close relationship with Paul Hawken and still do. We're doing a series now together. And in a lot of ways, he's just just the way he approaches it, the, the softness, the gentleness, the, the dreaming element, let's build something new. All that stuff has been a heavy influence on me. And, and I feel very, very grateful for, for his um, the, the, the role he's played in my life. Um, and I probably had a similar one in Sugar too. So I, I, I often find someone that I sort of trust and I can bounce questions off because um, I, I do take it seriously. I think if you're going to put anything out, any content or information out now, we have such a polluted, toxic information environment. I think it's more polluted than our ecological environment that I want to make sure that we are telling the truth and, and that we're doing it properly. And, and even 2040, I think we had probably more than 100 different academics look at ver- versions of that cut and stuff, which was infuriating because everyone had their own say and they wanted a different future. But I felt like what was true was that no one sort of said, okay, that science is too dodgy or that. Like, it was robust. And it was like, right, I feel confident that's going out there, especially when you're positing a different future. You could sort of go any, any which way. So that fact-based dreaming was really important. It's a dream, but it was grounded in absolute reality that this is possible and potentially scalable. Um, but yeah, I think mentors are vital and I think, um, we, we, we've sort of lost a lot of that because we are isolated now. We live in our own little bubbles of self-advertising and promotion that we have lost a lot of community. And I think that COVID is showing that, you know, that we are, we are reconnecting. Certainly my community, we've suddenly got WhatsApp groups around our street of people I haven't really met and suddenly we're interacting in ways that we hadn't before. So yeah, I just think a lot of elements of the previous system um, need a bit of a shake-up because I don't think they were bringing out the best in us. Just getting back to your, both the documentaries, Damon, I think the the wonderful thing, one of the wonderful things about them is that they both uh, initiated change in people's thinking and behaviours, which is um, which was you know, monumentally important. They didn't, as you said, they, they didn't just come out and go, oh, I'm feeling depressed and I've got to tell people how bad the world is or how bad something is you actually gave um them uh, a reason to to have hope and to actually do something and 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 actions to mm. to actually go on with you know whether whether it be their diet and their health with sugar and and also in, you know environmentally um uh with with 2040 so well done for it not being a doco where people go oh that was nice yeah and then they're on to the next netflix doco you know it actually and and one of the i think one of the unique things that you did was that you had an online platform where people could actually then go and then make some decisions or answer some questions and actually help them lead them to mm. a particular action or series or behaviours yeah. that would then um, almost amplify what they got from the movie. Yeah, I, I think that's so important that, that often, you know, you'd be the same. You watch a, a film sometimes, you think, wow, I feel so motivated right now or I feel so frustrated or angry. I need to do something. Mm. And if there's nowhere to go... Five minutes later, the, the inertia of our system means that you're back on social media or on Twitter or Instagram and suddenly all that's dissipated, that energy. So I just thought it was so important in that moment to capture people. You've got this one little moment when the doors open, get them to go to the website and if they just make one change or do something that impacts them, then that's a win. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think I'd ever make something now without that element. I've, I've just We've got so many lessons from it and so many benefits that... I sort of call it, it's, it's a difference between passive or active content. And I think it's really important to, to, to steer someone. If you're going to open them up and, 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 and show them something new, then you've got to help them a little bit and yeah. say, here's some things you can do. Otherwise, you just leave them, you know, completely perplexed. So, um, yeah, and, and that's I've only been able to do that because we've had extraordinary support from some wonderful people and wonderful organisations that have allowed us to do that. So I feel very grateful there. Um, but people are ready for it. You know, this sort of social impact documentary space is really exciting and it's really new and a lot of different organisations are realising now that they can use film as a bit of a lightning rod and they can put on events and they can actually, it can tell their story better than they can tell it themselves or it's just another aspect to, to amplify what they're doing. So I think we're going to see a lot more of it moving forward and because there's some wonderful success stories out there now. Talking about moving forward, um, lovely segue, uh, what's, what's in the pipeline for you in the future, anything you can tell, anything you can't um, tell us, but you can, 
No, I think I can tell some of it. So (laughs) (laughs) the there's a not many people are going to watch this. No, (laughs) there's a couple of sort of major projects which I'm quite excited. There's lots of going on, but I the ones I'm I'm really excited about, as I said, is this. um, So Paul Hawkins just uh, writing a new book called Regeneration, and it's sort of like Project Drawdown, but it's the next version of, of solutions and some lots of different things in food and ag in there. Really exciting. So um, rather than do a film on that, we thought let's actually do, flesh it out in more detail. So it's going to be a six-part series, but sort cool. of an hour on each thing. So an hour on oceans, an hour on ag or whatnot. And there's just some really exciting, wonderful people that have already said yes to it. So I think it's going to um, have a very big reach, which will be great. And we, we're going to do a similar thing where we just marry up the content to direct points of action so people can get involved. Um, yeah, and there's a couple other little films that um, I'm just, yeah, just mulling over at the moment because I think it's, um, I'm really interested in the, sort of the, the systemic element and how we look at things systemically and show people what's going on and how we, we pivot to something new. How do we move from this largely competitive, rivalrous, extractive system that we've created that's sort of reached its limit now? And how do we pivot to one that's more interconnected and symbiotic? It's probably the greatest challenge of our generation, really. And if we don't do it, I think we all know what's going to happen. So um, I feel like that's a, a space that I'm really curious because obviously all these problems, whether it's the soil damage or climate change or the ocean acidification, they all stem from a broken system in the way we're, we're doing things. So that's actually addressing something right at the core. Um, so I think I'll work on that space as well uh, in the coming years. Uh, any Great books, good books, films, docos. You've re- you're reading, you're watching at the moment that they're you know, inspiring you. You'd you'd, uh, you'd recommend. I've just started reading, reading the Living Mountain by Nan Shepherd. Do you know that book? No. It's, um, she was um, born eighteen ninety one, and she sort of explored this Scottish Scottish Highlands, these mountains, and um, it's regarded by some people as the, the sort of the best nature book, the best book about nature ever written. Just her descriptions of the landscape, just walking through the mountain and stuff, are just beautiful. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that um, as something very different. Um, and um, I've got another book. I've just read The Future We Choose, which is by um, Christiana Figueres. It's a sort of, again, it's a, a book about the importance of dreaming and, and sort of proposing a better world as we move forward. That's sort of sitting on the mantelpiece. Um, and there's another one I'm thinking of, but I just can't think. sort of like to just drift between a few different books at the same time i'm sure you're the same um and then you get pulled into onto your phone and you're like oh i just wasted 20 minutes of reading <laughs> time by looking at inane comments or yeah, so um but no it's you know my daughter velvet who's just um six she's really starting to take an interest in some of this stuff so i'm really enjoying explaining that to her and even the sort of the homeschool we've been doing at the moment has been very nature focused and obviously getting outside and using nature to describe things. And I really enjoy that. And just to see her thirst for that knowledge really gets me excited because that, that's it, isn't it? That's the generation, that if we can get them to deeply connect with the magic of nature and, and what it is. And I showed her this film the other day called Fantastic Fungi. I don't know if you've seen it. It's um, a film about Paul Stamets and all how the mycorrhizal works. And they've used beautiful animations mm. to show the pathways between trees and connecting nutrients and carbon. And just we, we walked to the beach the other day through this bush track and my daughter said, hey, Dad, is there mycelium under my feet right now? I just, yeah. I just felt so happy that Got my it. six-year-old said mycelium. So, you know, I think we just... <laughs> don't ask her to spell it. <laughs> don't, don't ask me don't to, ask spell me to, spell to spell it. <laughs> but, um, but that's it, isn't it? Like if we can get them to really connect with that magic, then it, it is reverence. I think we, 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 we sort of look for this, these ideologies about religion and worship and stuff. And, and the more I explore nature and see the magic in the soil, I think it's all there for us. We don't need to worship anything that isn't real. All the magic's under our feet. And the sooner you start to investigate that world, it just blows your mind. Mm. And um, it's there for us, just waiting patiently, calmly. You know. Chris Miliotis um, is a wonderful man and, and very smart cookie. He, he one of his favourite one, one of my favourite quotes of his is that um, the answer to the current crisis. I'm sort of paraphrasing is the um, the um, is 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 the food that we choose to eat and what's beneath our feet. Yeah. And that Simple. that for me sums it up. Yeah. Wonderfully. And you said a word there before, Damon, reverence, which is one of my favourite words, so underutilised. Yeah. Because that, for me, sums up, you know, the, not the the attitude we should have, but it's just a, such a wonderful approach to anything we do, isn't it? 
It is, mate. And I, you know, you've been in this space for a long time and, and probably a lot of some of your listeners have as well, but I'm very new to the sort of the region ag world. And I remember it was the reverence that got me that I, I was, mm. it was about three years ago and went onto my first couple of farms and just to see the life that had returned to those paddocks and the diversity and the animals and the birds and the platypus swimming in the clear river. That was it for me. I thought, this is where I want my food. This is where all our food should come from. And I did. I, I really fell in love with nature in, in those moments, standing in those paddocks. And I want my children to do the same. And I know that other people would feel the same because I was very much entrenched in, in, in the other world. And I'm a classic example of that. But if I can make that change and see and actually feel it and experience it and stand amongst it, it's very hard to, to turn back, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, it's like taking the red pill or the blue pill. So once you're down there, it's like, no, nah, I'm not going back now. If you made... Not a, not a sequel, but if you made that sugar film now, do you think you would have, would it, would it be a bit, you know, would it have of course, would be different? Yeah. Yeah. Of what, what would you add in there or take out? I mean, no right or wrong. I'm just sort of interested as to how one, one's... I would definitely have a, probably a section where I really spelt out to people the difference between processed food and real food. So I would look at sort of mass-produced food and probably do an experiment, go into the lab, show that soil under the under the microscope, and then show the soil of a region field and all the microorganisms and, and make that through fun animation, make that connection about the benefits of eating that type of food and how it interacts with our own systems and organisms. Uh, I just didn't know that at the time. Mm. I sort of had an inkling of it and on the surface, but I think now's the time to really make that connection for people. Um, and the false economy too of like, Sometimes, yeah, it is a little bit more expensive, but it's more expensive to not do that in terms of your bills and the costs and the lifestyle and the way you're going to live. It's worth paying that little bit more now um, because of the benefits you get. And I can I can experience that now. I've lived it that I feel more confident saying that. But at the time, I was very new. I mean, I'd still, it was such a shock that Sugar Film did well. And, and I sort of spent the next two years basically being a foodie and talking. And I had no interest, really. I, I really especially sugar. I just thought it'd be a fun story to tell because it was so, you know, Willy Wonka kind of madness. But suddenly I was talking to the Royal College of Medicine in London about sugar and fructose metabolism in the liver. And I was like, this is not my bag. (laughs) And I really burnt myself out. I got to a point, even now, I can't even look at the social media pages or we've got other people running that for the sugar, but I can't even go near it. So, um, yeah, I learned some lessons there. But yeah, of course you do things differently. I was younger. It was the first film I ever made and I didn't know anywhere near as much as I know now. Um, if you, I'm stealing, a, I'm stealing a question from Tim Ferriss, who I, I enjoy um, listening to his podcast. If, you, if there was a billboard that we could put on the highway out here, on the, on the <laughs> is that Pacific Highway out here? Yeah. In Byron Bay, um, which you can hear. I, I must apologise for any, any background roaring uh, there. Why are these people inside at home? Where are they driving to? Charlie? I know. Is it essential? I don't know. You were starting to sound essential. Because this is essential. essential. This podcast and us being here is essential. It's an essential <laughs> service. This is. If the police turned up and said, Oi, you do, they get their ruler out and go, Oi, what are you doing here? We, say, we are hey. entertaining the hogs and the ibis. Exactly. And the world yep. when this comes out. Um, if there was a billboard that we could construct or we had there and it didn't cost a cent, not that it matters too much, but and you could say something on there, what would you say? Oh, wow. That is a very tight question. Um, I don't know, exclamation, whatever. <sighs> Sometimes I think about the complexity of trying to you know, invent a new system and what do we do and how do we interact with each other and what does that look like? And sometimes if I distill it right down, I think it's just about being kind. So it would probably be something like, be kind. Like, don't overthink this we actually do get on and i think right now the fact that we are social distancing and we've shut our shops and the streets are empty shows that we do care deeply about each other we do value and that we've developed these systems and these ways of operating and these sort of communication devices that really drive us apart and don't let us be kind and i just i think it's a lot simpler than we think and if we all just were were nicer to each other and listened that we transform a lot of things. And I know that sounds really cliche and I wish I had a, a smarter answer, but I think sometimes we do overcomplicate things. 
and cliches are cliches for a reason, which is also a cliche. I was so meta then. <laughs> but yeah, probably be kind. People will drive past it and go, what the f Be kind. Is that a new kind of energy bar or something? Yeah. But it'll be something along those lines. Yeah. It'll get people thinking. <laughs> Just leave them with that. Be, be kind. kind. Humankind, be kind. Then they go, why? Yeah. Who, who to? I yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'd, I'd love to have more time to think about that, but that's my spontaneous no, I'm, I'm answer. Not give you, I'm not going to give you any more time. Yeah. This will go down in history as you are. <laughs> you're not going to be asked it ever again, I hope. Gee. If you are, please don't come up with a better answer. Yeah. How many people... <laughs> I reckon Tim Ferriss would have had some pretty good answers on his show, though. He's had some cracking good yeah. answers. Yeah. Some are questions, some are statements. Yeah. Um, I think it's... Fat. it's, it's and I, there you go. I think you, you might have won won the award for the best. Most cliche? No, just the most poignant, the most um, appropriate. Not that it's inappropriate yeah. or appropriate, but just... But think how transformative it would be totally. if we just were kind to each other. Yeah. Like instead of going, mate, Jared, you're right. Just, oh, yeah, mm. maybe he's got something in there for me to learn from. Yeah, I'm going to let him have that opinion. But it's hard because we've developed a system that's comp competitive. Like we're mm. almost pitted against each other. And that's mm. what people don't see is that it pushes up people that are very good at not being kind. In fact, they get rewarded for not being kind. They yeah. often get into positions of power because they're very good at showing no empathy. Like you just got to win at all costs, step all over people, and then you will succeed, the illusion of success. So we've designed a deeply flawed design that says if you're a real prick, you can, you can probably lead a country or, or, yeah. or run, a, run a corporation. That's not a system. No. You know? There's a quote that I love. It's and it goes something like this. It might not be. It's more of a statement. I don't even know who who said it, but you know, people are mean when they're scared. Yeah, spot on. You know, and if you think about that, yeah. and go instead of being reciprocate the anger, yeah. um, is to is to, is is to show uh, empathy, yeah. you know, and compassion, and go, wow, what how, yeah. what a what a life that person must be having to. Be in that situation. Hundred percent, mate. That that's a film I want to make one day. And I, I went through that experience myself in my own development. I did a couple of courses with my mum and stuff. And you'd get, you know, it'd be over a weekend, and the people coming in on a Friday, you think, oh wow, like that person. Like, wow, I don't, you know, there's no way I could connect with that person. But on the Sunday, when you've got to know that person, they're standing up in front of the room, and you hear their story. You buddy in tears over them because you think, of course, they're carrying themselves like that. They, this has happened to them. They've lost it, and all of us have that story, but we don't give ourselves that moment. We sort of quickly judge or react. But, you know, if you stop and talk to anyone, everyone's got a pretty horrific, mm. you know, some kind of trauma in some way that's affecting how they're making the decisions. Um, but again, we just don't value that or we don't set up a system to allow that. We, we set up a system that encourages you to pretend and to put on this facade of yourself and, and promote this, this image that's not you. It's a shop front and, and you get more likes and you get more followers if you act that up better if you're really authentic and just that you, no one's going to follow you so we've got to look at that because that's mm. that's that's changing how who we are and how we what we value out of each other and that's a broken system just on that um i did a course many years ago with my wife not mm. we didn't know each other at the time called mm. landmark right yes i've um, had friends do that yeah and similar similar thing similar you watch thing. transformations totally. yeah, and you watch yeah. people in front of your eyes do that and you can all even mm. though you think oh they're they're different vocation background whatever yep. you can see is you can see reflected in their story your own and that's really helpful yeah. it's a socratean forum it is mate and i i would say you know of course there's exceptions that we have sociopaths amongst us there's no doubt about that but the majority of us a huge majority of us yeah. are those people with that trauma going inside and we don't stop to consider that and yet we are led by those sociopaths, as I said before. They're put into positions of, of power and they get to make the rules. So we are a huge majority, I think, of altruists that are led by a very small group of sociopaths. Mm. <laughs> and, and that's why we've got to change it up. Mm. You know? and, and again, this, 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 this highlights that. You know, these moments where we stop and we're not playing that game. Suddenly we've paused. You know, we, are, we are doing better. There are community things that are, that are changing or the way we're interacting because we're not having to play this game. And I think it, it, it exposes that, these moments. So I hope we take lots of lessons from it. I'm certainly taking lessons from it. And I, I would feel very sad if we sort of six months from now, we just it was all back to what it was. And there's a real possibility that's going to happen. And that's okay. But it will be disappointing. Well, I'm disappointed that we have to wrap it up. That's been wonderful. I know we've, you've got stuff to do. And um, 
our listeners are probably going, yep, that's it. <laughs> they're not, they're not still there with us, mate. They left at about the <laughs> Greg Chapel moustache moment. <laughs> but if oh, they are, thank you for sticking around. Yeah, totally. Thank you, all listeners. Damon, thank you so much. Um, fascinating stuff. We could talk, or I could certainly talk all day about this sort of stuff. Um, and let's, let's do it do, again. Let's do it again sometime, yeah. I yeah. reckon. Let's get a few others under the belt and, um, and regroup. Love it, mate. Congrats on what you're doing. It's great. Well, no, I straight back at you. Thanks, Dane. Hug from a distance. <laughs> no kissing. <laughs> well, there we have it. What a lovely fella. What an inspiring conversation we had there at the farm at Byron Bay. Um, always a pleasure to spend some time with Damon, especially with such insight into potentially what, what could be on the other side of this um, pandemic, the crisis, the the COVID-19 um, situation that we're in currently as we as we were recording that. Um, and, and the good news is he's actually done the homework already uh, through the film 2040, where, um, as, as, as we talk about, he's already identified what we can be doing right now with the technologies and the innovations. So that was, uh, again, another inspiring conversation. Uh, I trust I'll catch up with Damon again uh, in the next series. But for the next interview, the next next episode of The Regenerative Journey, we're going to be speaking with Sarah Schmuder. Uh, fantastic interview. So enjoyed spending time with Sarah. Uh, she's been in the land care movement for 15 years. Um, that's half of, the, of, its, of its entire life. It's 31 years of life here in Australia, in the world. Uh, we talk about her growing up you know, in, in the country, how that influenced her thinking, her behaviour, what it was like to be a publican uh, at an outback pub, her role in the community and the importance of community to her um, from a, a social and cultural point of view, uh, the importance of connection to nature, uh, you know, the, the, the potential of using natural capital of farms and properties. Uh, we we uh, we went pretty deep about um, her her experience with the bushfires uh, late last year. Um, her favourite podcasts, uh, and we also talk about um, her definition of regenerative agriculture, which is which is really interesting because it's a it's a topic or it's a it's a conversation that uh, um, has no end, and there's certainly no parameters around what the definition is of regenerative agriculture. So. I really enjoyed speaking with Sarah about that. And she's also one of the administrators of the fantastic Face Good Face Face Group page, um, Regenerative Agriculture Group. If you're not on that page uh, and you're interested in that space, then get on there. And now don't forget to subscribe, to comment, to share, to uh, listen and all those wonderful things. Um, really just to uh, well for your own information but also to help um, help spread the words help spread the news and um, I guess the higher up on the rankings our little podcast gets the more people might get to hear it and the uh, the wider this news can be spread Um, looking forward to uh, to uh, speaking with you next time For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. And as the recipient of the Bob Hawke Landcare Award, Charlie would like to thank Landcare Australia for their support in the creation of this first series of The Regenerative Journey.